Just a moment. Our text this morning is going to come from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. And these words will be on the screen for you. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God." And all the people answered, it is well spoken. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for what it is we get to celebrate in this place today. And as we come now to your word, we ask that you would give us a vision of you and of your grandeur and of your power and of your strength that we cannot unsee. Help us to look today at nothing but you. Help us to see nothing but you. Help us to know once again that there is no one like you, that you have no rival, you have no equal. 
and that you continue today to move in power. So Father, we ask now that you would speak to us words that would edify your church and glorify your name. Will you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. We lay ourselves before it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. C.S. Lewis once wrote, the perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself and thinking about worship is a different thing from worshiping. We're really excited to be here today. We, we are so grateful for this facility that the Lord has given to us and for the opportunities that it opens to us and affords to us as a church that we've never had before. But I do hope you understand as we gather together today, the object of our worship is not a building. And, and in fact, if we're not careful that the novelty of all of this, as exciting as it is, could actually serve to hinder our worship instead of helping it. The book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, reminds us that the Most High God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. This is one of the promises of the gospel. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within every single believer in Jesus Christ. And so the only way this ground is made holy, friends, is because the Spirit of the living God dwells not within these walls, but within you and me. And he's the one, as we come in here to worship today, that we want to make sure we direct our attention to. Today is not about a group of people who built a building. Today is about a God who continues to build his people. The books of First and Second Kings are exactly about what you expect them to be about. They're a historical overview of the kings who reigned in ancient Israel. Centuries before, God had delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses, and he made his covenant with the nation of Israel. The covenant was that they would be his people and that he would be their God. And the terms of this covenant were very, very simple. He says, as you go into the land that I'm giving you, if you serve me, if you love me, if you honor me, if you worship me with your whole heart, things will go well for you. But then he also warns them, but if you turn your backs on me, if you forget me, if you reject me, if you rebel against me, then you're going to face the consequences. So the Old Testament really just follows this same perpetual pattern. God delivers his people, but his people forget him and turn their backs against him. They fall under his judgment. They cry out to God, and then God delivers. It's the same cycle over and over and over again. And the picture we see repeated all through the Old Testament is that when people become faithless, our God remains faithful. First Kings 18 shows us one of these pictures of the faithful God in faithless times. Israel's being led by a wicked king named Ahab. He was the seventh king of the nation of Israel, and he had married, with, uh, married into a family of notorious, uh, notoriously wicked people. He married a woman named Jezebel. She was notoriously wicked, and she influenced Ahab to lead the nation of Israel away from the worship of the Lord. So Ahab tore down the altars of where the sacrifices for worship were made. He tore down the places of worship. He killed the prophets who preached the word of God, and he replaced all of it with the worship of Baal. Baal was the god of fertility and rain. Ongoing rivalry that we see all throughout the Old Testament are, uh, happens between the worshipers of the Lord and those who are the worshipers of Baal. And that rivalry reaches its climax in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah, who was the lone prophet left of the Lord, squares off Wild West style on Mount Carmel against 450 prophets of Baal. The odds are not in Elijah's favor. 
The odds are not in Elijah's favor, but what this passage shows us today once again is that our God is undefeated against impossible circumstances. Our God is never in the minority, and this was one of those days where his power was absolutely not going to be denied. You know, reflecting on those words from C.S. Lewis, aiming for the perfect church service is a pretty lofty goal, but friends, that should never stop us from trying. Today, we want our attention to be on God. So this is a longer passage, short time that we'll have together. And I want us to draw five very simple truths about who our God is. And 1 Kings 18 shows us who he is. The message today is not that there is no building like this building. The message today is that there is no God like our God. And this is our God from 1 Kings 18. Verses 20 and 21, we see first that he requires our undivided allegiance. At the beginning of this whole scene, Elijah asks the group of people that's gathered together a very simple question. He asked them, how long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then serve him. But if Baal is God, then serve him. God's people were, were standing sort of in this synchronized religious neutral space. That they they kind of had one foot in the worship of the Lord, but then they also had the other foot in the worship of Baal. And so Elijah now draws a line in the sand. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? This Hebrew word for limping is a rare word that describes an inability to properly move. Now, the, the picture that you could get here is, is someone who is trying to use crutches, not with just one, but with two bad legs. You know, crutches are okay if you still have a, long, a strong leg that you can plant on and, and propel yourself forward with, but if both of your legs are locked up, then you're gonna be just kind of stuck in this space, sort of, you know, waddling like a penguin with its feet tied together and not really able to go one direction or the other. And that's where God's people are. They're, they're limping between two different opinions. They're kind of worshiping the Lord, but they're also kind of worshiping Baal. Baal was the God of war, so they trusted in his protection. Baal was the god of fertility, so they wanted to embrace the sensuality and the sexual practices of the pagan nations. Baal was the god of rain, so they trusted him for the growth of their crops. Now, to be sure, God's people absolutely still wanted all of the blessings that came with being his covenant people. They still wanted his protection. They still wanted his provision. They still wanted his blessing. They still wanted the salvation. They wanted the covenant promises, but they didn't want to keep the covenant terms. They wanted the benefits of having the Lord as their savior, but they still wanted to hold on to their sin. You know, unfortunately, this is where many professing Christians find themselves today, find ourselves today. We're kind of in this neutral space of, of worship. We've got one foot that's in the world, but we still have one foot that we're, we're kind of trying to get in the church. And we want the blessings that come from being from God's people. We want the blessings and the benefits that come from being followers of Jesus Christ. Like we want heaven when we die. We want God's blessing. We want his provision. We want his protection over our lives. We want to be saved, but we also still kind of want to hold on to our sin. We want the blessings of God's promises, but we don't want to do it on God's terms. And scripture warns us in the way that Elijah warned the people, scripture warns us against this type of neutrality. If you go to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, the Lord extends this warning to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the warning. 
The Lord says, listen, be hot or be cold. Be anything but lukewarm. That's the question Elijah is asking the people. Listen, worship the Lord or don't worship the Lord. Be anything except for limping between two opinions. Friends, our God is not one God among many gods. Our God is the only God and there is no other God. So he requires our undivided allegiance. Second, we see from verses 22 to 29 that our God is never intimidated by his enemies. He's never intimidated by his enemies. Again, just look at Elijah's circumstances here. He's one prophet against 450. And so we got a Wild West showdown in the ancient Near East. And Elijah just throws down the gauntlet. He says, here's what we're gonna do. He says, you guys go build an altar and then I'll go build an altar. You prepare a sacrifice, I'll prepare a sacrifice. Pick your bull. You take the one that you want. Then you call down fire from heaven and I'll call down fire from heaven and the God that answers by fire will know that that's the true God. Now, Baal being the storm God is in control of the lightning. So this should be easy for him, right? Just Thor, thunderbolt, you know, right there onto the ground and, and just consume the whole thing in one fell swoop. And so the prophets of Baal, they wholeheartedly agree. They say, this is good, fine, we can do this. And so from the morning up until the middle of the day, the prophets of Baal, what are they doing? They're crying out to Baal. They're lifting their voices. We're told they're limping around the altar. That's an important word. And they're doing this just over and over and over again, lifting up their voices. They're, they're, they're going to the extent of even cutting themselves, trying to prove their religious fervor, trying to prove their zeal in hopes that they could somehow coerce Baal into action. And, and listen, just to show the goofiness of it all, Elijah just starts to make fun of them. He's like, you know, I just imagine him, you know, he's just kind of sitting on the wall, feet dangling over the side. He's sipping a Capri Sun. He's like, talk louder, louder, like more noise. He's a God, but he's, he's off far away. I just think you need to raise your voices a bit more. Talk louder. He says, maybe he went on vacation. Maybe he's off somewhere taking a nap. Maybe he's just busy running errands. Maybe he's relieving himself. That means exactly what you think it means, by the way. And, and again, th this messes so badly with all of our modern day sensibilities, but Elijah doesn't seem to be the least bit concerned about offending anybody. Like he's, he's got no concern here whatsoever, and he has even less concern that, that something's gonna fall from heaven and strike him down because this passage tells us that as they lifted their voices and they cried out and they cut themselves, no one answered. No one paid attention and you know why nobody answered? You know why nobody paid attention? Because there was nobody there. Our God is not intimidated by any other God because there isn't any other God. He's not intimidated by any other God because he's not, there is no other God. Our God has no rival. He has no equal. I understand this morning, our God is compassionate and he's merciful and he's kind but man, he is not cowardly, weak, or inept. He is never in the minority. You know, when you look around today, um, it feels like the news, we always hear about the church is always bad. It feels like every single day we're just learning a, a new piece of, of bad news about the church. And I think as Christians, we have to be willing to acknowledge the fact that a lot of this is very much self-inflicted. Man, what, what the last decade has shown us is the church, we, we just got this, this, this terrible history of, of covering up abuse and covering up scandals. We have a, a horrible, horrible propensity to maximize the sins of the world while we minimize and ignore our own. And listen, we have to own that full stop. We can't sweep that under the rug. We can't pretend that that's not there. We have to be able to own that full stop. But even beyond our self-inflicted wounds, it, it feels like all of the press about the church today is just bad. 
It's just bad how the church is outdated and the church is irrelevant and the church is, is behind modern times. And, and you know, we're just kind of too smart for this stuff anymore. And, and as the world becomes increasingly secularized, Christians will become increasingly marginalized. And, and these, these are some realities that we, we should face. But, but, but again, no matter how bleak, no matter how bad the circumstances look, our God is never intimidated by it. Like, he's not in heaven right now going like, I just don't know what I'm going to do with 21st century American church. I, I just don't know. I never saw this coming. He's not intimidated by this. You know, there, there's this uh, great story. Alistair Begg is a, uh, he's a pastor up in the Ohio area, and he wrote this article a couple of years ago titled, Welcome to Exile, We're Going to Be Okay. And, and in this article, he tells this, this really incredible story about the British Broadcasting Company during the 1960s. In the 1960s, the BBC was being swept away by the tides of secularism. And in the meeting, one of the producers, there was a young producer, probably in like his mid-30s, short brown hair, 5'9", 150, big opinions. He stands up in the, in the middle of this meeting, stands up in the middle of this meeting, and he declares that the BBC should do away with all of its religious broadcasting because nobody's interested in that anymore. The world's too smart for this stuff. Nobody wants this stuff anymore. We just need to do away with all of these things. And present in that meeting was a man named Lord Reith. Lord Reith was one of the original organizers of the BBC back in the 1920s. And he served as the first director general of the BBC. And so he listened to this young producer's little rant and tirade. And when he was finished talking, he told the young man to sit down. And Lord Reith, who was a big, imposing man who stood about six foot six, he stood up and he looked at the young producer and he said, the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And history will vindicate him as a prophet because the church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Just the same way it will stand at the grave of whatever your favorite news network is, of Fox News, of CNN, it will stand at the grave of every empire. Just the same way it stood at the grave of Rome, just the same way it continues to stand at the grave of Hitler, just the same way the church stands today at the grave of Nietzsche, who just a generation ago declared that God was dead. The church will stand at the grave of every single empire. For 2,000 years, the church has been told that it's on the wrong side of history. 120 misfits, this movement is born in the shadow of the oppression of the Roman Empire, yet 2,000 years later, Rome's gone and the church stands. The church is never irrelevant. The church is never outdated. The church is, is never incapable of meeting the needs of the times. If you believe that the church in America is dying today, I want you to go look at the parking lot this morning. Because what's happening here today is one of those reminders, Jesus Christ is still building his church. He is still building his body. He had promised this, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. You think he's threatened by a news network? Our God is never intimidated by his enemies. He's never intimidated by his enemies and Christ will never stop building his church. Third, we see from this passage that God has revealed himself through his word. This is who our God is. He reveals himself through his word. So Elijah's let the prophets of Baal, he, they, they've had their fun now. He's, he's kind of let this go on for a long time. He's had a lot of fun probably at their expense. Verses 30 through 35, Elijah calls then the people to himself. Ahab had torn down the altars. They re he replaced them with objects of worship to Baal. And Elijah prepares the altar. And then he prepares the sacrifice. And then he does something really, really weird. He digs a big trench all the way around the altar and he has them completely fill it up with water. Now, like, I'm not a rocket scientist or anything, but I built some fires. 
And I know that generally if you're trying to build a fire, water's not terribly helpful. Like if you're trying to catch something on fire, you usually don't soak it in water before you strike the match. Elijah is intentionally trying to make this harder. He, like he's intentionally stacking the deck against himself. He's intentionally doing something that would make this seem less possible. He's got a ridiculous amount of confidence here. He, there's no doubt in Elijah's mind whatsoever that when he prays in faith, the fire is gonna fall from heaven. And the, the source of that confidence comes from what Elijah knew he had in an ace of spades that the prophets of Baal did not have. What Elijah had that they did not have was the promise of the word of God. Go back and read this section, verses 30 to 35. He calls them first to remember the word of the Lord. Every movement through scripture, every movement through church history that has had to do with the reformation, the reforming of God's people when they've fallen away, it has always started with a call back to the word of God. And so that's where Elijah starts. God has revealed himself to his people through his word. As he revealed himself then, he continues to reveal himself now. Reformation always begins with a call back to the word. On October 5th, 1544, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther preached at the dedication of the Castle Church in Torgau, Germany. This lays claim to being the first Protestant church that was ever, church building that was ever constructed. I shared these words at our groundbreaking ceremony in March of last year. Luther said in his sermon on that day, it is the intention of this building that nothing else shall happen inside it except that our dear Lord speak to us through his holy word. And we, in turn, talk to him through prayer and praise. Catch this. We can spare everything except the word. The building we're, we're seated in right now is sitting on 105 timber pilings that go about 50, 60 feet straight down to hit rock. But I hope you understand that the foundation of Cross Community Church is not 105 timber pilings. We can spare the timber pilings, but we cannot spare the word. I love the windows in this sanctuary, but we can spare these windows. We cannot spare the word. I like that we got coffee on Sunday mornings now. We can spare the coffee, but we can't spare the word. I know this is maybe not a great illustration for today. We can spare the parking, but we cannot spare the word. We can spare all these things, but we can do away with every single one of these things. Listen, Jesus has been building this church without this building. He hasn't needed for us to, like we did not become a church when we moved into this building today because the church isn't a building, the church is the body of Christ. And it's a body that he organizes through the preaching and the proclamation of his word. The cry of the Reformation was the church reformed, always being reformed according to the word of God. Every generation of the church is in need of reformation. And the modern day church is absolutely no exception to this. We are in need today of reformation. We have to face that reality. But understand, when it comes to reforming the modern day church in our country, there are two very, very different competing voices. And the difference between these voices is the difference between life and death. Because you have on the one hand, those who are working to reform the church according to the word of God, and then you have those, on the other hand, who are working to reform the church according to the values of secular culture. And so these are the extremes that threaten the health and the vitality of the church today. If you go to the far religious right, you've got a very vocal group of people who want to reform the church according to an idolatrous Christian nationalism that exalts the kingdom of America above the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
And then if you go to the opposite extreme of the far religious left, you've got a very progressive voice that is working to reform the church, not according to the word of God, but according to the ethics of the modern sexual revolution. And according to modern secular psychology and according to insidious ideologies like intersectionality. And, and hear me this morning when, when I tell you, both of these extremes will fail. Because the moment you start trying to reform the church according to anything other than the word of God is the moment you have stopped building the church that Jesus promised to build. And we no longer have his blessing. We no longer have his promise. God has revealed himself through his word. God has revealed himself through his word once for all time. The Bible is never outdated. It is never irrelevant. It's always enough. It's never obsolete. Friends, time might change, but truth doesn't. Truth remains. We can spare everything but the word. Fourth, we see of our God that he will respond to the prayers of his people. I, I love this part. If you're one of those people that, you, you, when it comes to prayer, you're like, I've got a weird relationship with prayer. If you're one of those people that's, that you feel like, man, every time I, I pray 15, 20 seconds, and then I'm thinking about my grocery list. I'm thinking about that person at work I can't stand. You're supposed to pray for them in that moment, by the way. Thinking about stuff I gotta do at the house. Like if you're that person, you're like, man, I just feel terrible. Like I wanna pray, but every time I try to pray, I can only pray for like a short period of time, and I just don't think God is honored by that. I think what we see here could be an encouragement to you today. Because the prophets of Baal, man, they cry out to their false God for hours upon hours upon hours. They work up all the emotion. They work up all the tears. They're, they're throwing their bodies into this thing. They're cutting themselves to prove their devotion. Elijah prays a paragraph, and the fire falls from heaven. Better are five words prayed in faith to the true God than five million words prayed in faith to a God who isn't there. It is not the size of your prayer, it's the size of your God that makes our prayers effective. He responds to the prayers of his people. You know, as the storm God, Baal was also supposed to be in control of the rain. If you go just a chapter before Isaiah had prophesied, there was gonna be a period of drought on the land. And right after the passage we're looking at today, we see that Elijah again goes to the Lord in prayer and he prays in faith for it to rain and it rains. And so you see all these pictures happening. Like Elijah, he's praying that fire would fall from heaven and fire falls from heaven. He's praying that the rain would come again from heaven and the rain comes again from heaven. And God works in these extraordinary supernatural ways. And it's so easy to read that and say, man, I could never pray like that. Like I could never pray and see God move in such an extraordinary way. The scripture tells us that the exact opposite is actually true. If you go to the book of James near the end of your Bible, James 5, 16 through 18, James is a half-brother of Jesus and he writes these words to the early church. He reflects on this account from 1 Kings 18. And this is what he tells them in James 5, 16 through 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And here's the example he gives. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. It is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Did you catch that? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah. Guys, he, he's not some superhero with his cape blowing in the wind. James says, no, he's like you and me. 
He's, he's like you and me. He's a man with a nature just like ours. But he prayed fervently in faith. He trusted in the promise of God's word. He trusted that God was going to act on behalf of his people. It's so easy to look at things like this and say, man, I could never, ever do this. But don't forget, as you're reading these passages of Scripture, as you hear these stories, as you hear these accounts, remember, these were people too. And there's nothing that's not available to us today that was available to them then because this same power of God's presence that came down in fire and water, friends, that's the same power and presence that dwells within the heart of every person who calls on the name of the Lord. We have no less than they had then. In the same way that Elijah prayed for God to wash away the drought, James says you and I can pray with confidence that God will wash away our sins. If Elijah can pray for fire, you and I can ask the Lord to be forgiven. If Elijah can pray for the rain, you and I can ask the Lord to redeem us. And James says we can do these things with confidence. Our God is a God who hears the prayers of his people. Fifth and finally this morning, we see of our God that he will be exalted above every other name. He will be exalted above every other name. This is Elijah's prayer back in verse 36. His desire is that these people may know that you, O Lord, our God, that you have turned their hearts back. He goes pleading to the Lord, but it was time when it was his turn, it was time for the Lord to move. It was time for the Lord to act. That was his desire. Let them know that you're God. Let them know that I am your servant. Let them know that I have done all of these things according to your word. And then what he prays for in verse 36 is a mass movement of repentance. He asked that the Lord would turn their hearts back because this is where true spiritual awakening happens. It's when we turn away from our sin and we turn our eyes and we turn our hearts and we turn our minds back to the true and the living God. That's what the word repent means. It means to turn. It means we turn away from our sinful desires. It means that we turn away from a life that stands contrary to what God has revealed in his word. We turn away from our desire for money and our desire for pride and for power and for, for attention and fame. We turn our hearts away from these things and we turn our eyes, we turn our hearts, we turn our minds to the true and the living God. This is what he's praying for, that their hearts would turn. You know, just hours before, those who had gathered together, when Elijah asked them that question, how long are you gonna go limping between two opinions? They sat in complete silence. They sat in total silence, and then they watched the prophets of Baal do their thing, and no one spoke, and no one responded. No one said a word, because nobody was there. Our God is not a God who is silent. Our God is the God who speaks by fire. And when he moved in power that day, when his strength and his glory was displayed, all of the people gathered no longer had a choice. The only declaration that they could make was, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. There was no more denying his power. They moved past that threshold. They moved out of the neutral zone of limping between opinions, of having one foot in the worship of Baal and having one foot in the worship of the Lord. And they moved to the side of the Lord with the profession that he is God. And that's the same profession that Jesus still uses today to build his church. It's the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we sing earlier, all glory be to Christ. The song today is not all glory be to Cross Community Church. It's all glory be to Jesus Christ. 
The moment this church is no longer about that is the moment we have ceased to be the church. A few weeks ago, as our elder team was gathered in here together praying, we were standing up here, and I was standing about right here, and we were praying together as a body of leaders for this congregation. My prayer to the Lord that day was this, and I stand by it today. I prayed specifically, Lord, reduce this building to dust and ashes before a false gospel is proclaimed from this place. The day it's no longer about Jesus, crush it to the ground. All glory belongs to Jesus Christ. Our God will be exalted above every other name. And we do this with urgency. And we see from this passage that those who did make this profession, those who confessed the Lord is God, they were saved, they were delivered, but those who had rejected the Lord, those who were working against the Lord, those who had rebelled against the Lord, found their destruction. Friends, our God's a loving father, but he's also a just judge. Because he's good, because he's holy, because he's perfect, no evil can be allowed to go unpunished. But this is what sets our God apart from every other God. This is what's revealed to us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is so good. Our God is not a God who now requires us once again to build altars and make sacrifices of animals. The final sacrifice has already been made at the altar of the cross through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our God does not require us to cut ourselves and bleed to prove our devotion to him. Our God came and bled for us to prove his devotion to us. The fire of heaven no longer falls to consume the blood and the remains of bulls and, and to consume altars we ourselves are the living sacrifice before God and the Holy Spirit in fire falls from heaven and he consumes us and we burn as a living sacrifice before a holy God. Our God is going to be exalted above every other name. Jesus Christ is going to get his glory whether you and I participate in this or not. And we can rest assured today that the God who has the authority over the fire, the God who has the authority over the rain, is the God who also has the authority to forgive us and to redeem us from our sins. And so as we close together this morning, I wanna give us two very simple points in challenge and response. First challenge for us is to confess that the Lord is God. He's not one God among many. He's the only God and there is no other. We confess that the Lord is God. And then what stems from that challenge is to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to him to step out of the neutral zone, to not be in this lukewarm space, to not be in the space of limping between two different opinions. Confess that the Lord is God and we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to him. A couple weeks ago, um, we had a new staff member uh, join our, our staff team. Scott Shipes has been hired to serve as our um, executive pastor of ministry operations. And last Sunday night, we had a family meeting for our covenant members here in this building. And uh, we formally introduced Scott for the first time. And as we introduced him last week, he shared part of his own personal testimony. And it's this incredible testimony. You know, Scott, into his adult life, in his 20s and 30s, he had this very successful business career, um, doing well for himself, had been baptized, was in the church. Not just in the church, was serving as a deacon in his church was a Sunday school teacher in his church, and that's all well and good except for one problem. Scott didn't know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And it was at the gentle probing and, and, and pushing of, of a friend as they were having some conversation about just where he was at in his walk with Christ. He asked me, he says, do you know Jesus as your Lord? And Scott's like, yeah, I got, I got baptized. His friend goes, I didn't ask you when he got wet. 
I asked you, do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord? And Scott just came to this realization. He had never wholeheartedly surrendered himself to Jesus. And, and so in, in the coming years, he stepped away from his business career. He followed the Lord's calling. He served overseas as a missionary. He's served as a children's pastor. He's still being faithful to the Lord to follow him to his next assignment here. And so friends, I want to ask you this this morning gently, but I do want to ask you directly, just the same way Scott's friend asked him. And in light of the text that we've seen this morning, how long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? How much longer are you going to try to play the game of, of keeping one foot in the world while you take a step in the church? When are you going to cross that threshold? When are you going to open your voice and confess that the Lord is God? When are you gonna step out of, of being lukewarm? When, when are you gonna turn either hot or cold? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? Jesus Christ invites you today, come to me. He's calling you out of the neutral zone. Come to him. Jesus Christ invites you today, come to me. He can turn your heart from your sin. He can turn your heart from yourself and fix your heart and your mind and your attention on what matters most. And what matters most today is not this building. What matters most today is what he's given us through his son, Jesus Christ. If he never gave us this building, we still have everything we need because he gave us Jesus. And he is worthy of your undivided allegiance because he has already proven his undivided allegiance to you. So you just bow your heads with me as we close together this morning. How long will you limp between two different opinions? In just a moment, we're gonna to come to the table for communion. And scripture encourages us and exhorts us to do this through introspection, through confession, and through repentance of sin. And so listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I just encourage you, will you examine your life this morning? Do you have a foot in the world and in the church? Are you limping between opinions? Are you in the neutral zone? You're not hot, you're not cold, you're just kind of living in this lukewarm space. The Lord's calling you out of this today. If the Lord is God, then follow him. If the Lord is God, then serve him. If the Lord is God, then go all in because he requires our undivided allegiance. And, and listen, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Like you don't profess to be a Christian and, and you feel, you're like, okay, I, I'm, I'm in that neutral space. Like I, I want to believe I want to take that leap. I want to take that jump. I mean, maybe you've got some big questions. You've got some doubts. You've got some fears and some struggles and some baggage. And, and listen, sometimes when you're limping between the opinions, you need a group of people to come carry you. <laughs> and, and that is why we're here. We, we believe and we practice those words that are right outside those red doors. If you are weary, if you are empty, if you've failed if you're dealing with the consequences of sin in your life, listen, Jesus welcomes you. And that means we have to welcome you as well. And it's our joy to do it. We'll walk with you. We'll, we'll, we'll be patient with you. We'll give you that space. But we do wanna move you out of the neutral zone. We wanna put your feet on the solid ground of the rock of professing that Jesus Christ is Lord and knowing that he's the only true God. And so, Father, as we come to this table this morning, as we confess our sins, as we turn from our sins, and we turn our hearts and our minds and our attention and our focus to you, 
Will you be glorified in our praise, be glorified in our response? Will you move in our hearts and power? Would the fire of your Holy Spirit consume us today? That we would burn as a living sacrifice before you, holy and acceptable to you all of our days. We thank you so much for what we've had the privilege of celebrating here today. As we continue to respond in song and at the table and in prayer, let our sacrifice of praise be pleasing to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.